Welcome to the Favorites, the podcast. Today, real betting action is taking place around the world and in the United States. We're going to get to all of that for the weekend. Later on in the show, Darren Ravella is going to come on. He's going to talk about two minutes in sports history that turned into $72 million for one man. If that's not a tease to make you stick around, I don't know what else would other than just the fact you get to listen to Darren Ravel. But before we do all that, let's get to Mr. Sean Zarillo, who does just about everything for us at Action Network, whether it's tennis, horse racing, or in particular, what's most important for today and this weekend, UFC and baseball. Sean Zarillo. How are you doing with KBO? Let's talk about Korea Baseball Organization. The games are God knows when. All I know is I see you filing like in the middle of the day for stories that are relevant overnight and early the next morning. What is happening with this Korea Baseball Organization? Explain it to me. Yeah, it's madness, especially from a betting perspective. You know, I'm trying to give people the best information and lines possible. And normally we'd have some MLB games coming up at 1 p.m. or 7 p.m. local time for us. And these games are going off at 5.30 a.m. Eastern time. So really getting line development later in the evening. I'm, I'm finalizing plays around 11 p.m., 12 a.m. at night, uh, putting them out on Twitter. The last things I'm playing is as lines end up ticking up and going to bed, seeing some some numbers even moving up further that I wish I had waited on and had time to play, but I got to sleep at some point. So the KBO seems to be taking a ton of action. These lines are absolutely flying when they open. Uh, the markets are opening for them. The 5.30 a.m. games are opening around 3 p.m. the day before. So it's tons of action coming in. The totals are skyrocketing when people want to hit them. The money lines and the underdogs are absolutely flying up later in the day. So Lots of value to be had, especially for underdog betters. And uh, I think people are really taking to this league, which kind of has a, a old school feel to it. It's, it's almost like watching 1980s MLB baseball. All right. So let me unpack this for a second. Number one, are you getting up to watch the games? Yes. Kind of become a routine with CPBL that we've had going since April 11th. Kind of used to those games going off at 530 in the morning. So more than happy to get up for the games. Unfortunately, now that ESPN has the broadcast rights, it looks like the games that were all on Twitch have been pulled down. So it's it's limiting viewing options for uh, people who want to take in all the games at once. All right, so you're only getting to watch like a game or two when ESPN broadcasts them at like 5.30 in the morning, which to me is just fascinating that ESPN went out of its way to do this. But I think it speaks to, obviously it speaks to the need for sports. It speaks to the need for ESPN to get live event programming on the air. You mentioned sort of the lines are flying. We, we need to go even a step further back, which is, did you ever bet on the KBO before? And how do you research betting on the KBO? Yeah, so I'd never bet on the KBO before. I'd never bet on, you know, Taiwanese professional baseball before uh, early April. But I think like anything else, you got to find the data points that you think are relevant eliminate the noise that you think isn't. And then, I mean, I can basically take the data that's out there. Thankfully, uh, cpblstats.com, websites like mykbostats or mykbo.com, uh, KBO Fancy Stats, all these websites really just do a great job of putting information out there and translating it, thankfully, into English that people can consume and, and manipulate for their purposes. So really, it's it's not much different data than I would use to build out an MLB model. I did have to 
kind of manually figure out park factors and scoring environments at the relevant parks relative to one another, you know, over the past two years and kind of adjust because the the league has dropped off so dramatically in terms of run production. So I had to adjust for the league averages in those years. So that was a little bit of a manual work. But other than that, you know, a lot of the player data is already there. A lot of the team data is already there. So I can just kind of take that data and plug it into a model, adjust it for the, the league average run environment and get essentially what should be what I think are fair off each day. Uh, continuing to tweak that process as I go, sort of widen the margin for the, the win probability model after a day or two, just to bring it more in line with the CPBL model, which I felt is a little bit more accurate. So sort of tweaking it as I go, but by and large, it's, it's not so dissimilar from how you would go about handicapping MLB games. You just need to find the right data. Some of the stuff that you mentioned was manual. How are you even deciding what is the signal and what is the noise here? Because you mentioned you have to separate and then you need to dig in a little bit to translate it yourself. I don't mean Korean to English. I mean, understanding how the data can be translated into something that's relevant. That's not easy. And you mentioned like, this is a little bit like 1980s baseball. How do you even know that? You haven't watched the KBO. Like you're putting money on these things. You're doing it based on data that you're finding on the internet, having never seen it. And yet you're acting with confidence about what your decision-making is. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's still baseball. And these CPBL games, you know, they're they're absolutely archaic. Sometimes the one this morning between the Monkeys and the Guardians started out 6 nothing Monkeys. It was immediately tied 6-6 a few innings later. So those games are are pretty ridiculous in terms of the way that leads go back and forth. But these KBO games, I mean, just looking at the box scores, seeing how they play out, they tend to be much tighter, much more like MLB games, just because the the run environment is lower than MLB games are. And when you compare that, I mean, that's, that was really the biggest difficulty with kind of eliminating the, the signal from the noise, looking at how dramatically the run environment dropped off in this league over the past two years. They intentionally dejuiced the baseball because there were too many home runs being hit. So the run environment now with the dejuiced baseball is 18% lower than it was last year. Home runs dropped off by 42%. But that being said, if you dig into park factor data and normalize it for that individual season, the data held pretty much exactly consistent. So even though the run environment dropped off, the relative runs per game to league average basically stayed the same at all these home parks. So I think that in and of itself is is pretty much confirmation that these park factors are real and held up over a multiple year sample, even though the the game being played changed. But with that, you know, less need for guys to hit fly balls, more of a more of a need to move runners along, sacrifice batters, keep the ball in play. You know, that's that's what pitchers are doing. They're pitching to contact and trying to limit hard contact, knowing that the ball isn't going to really hurt them when it's in the air. So accounting for all of that, there's just so many more balls in play than you would see in a normal major league game today and fewer home runs than you would see in a major league game. And and the league averages sort of compare to what we saw in MLB in the 80s. You know, it's not baseball that I grew up watching. I was a 90s kid, so I grew up with that uh, and then slowly evolved into the analytics revolution that we have today. But it, it really is just a ton of balls in play, a ton of action. You can see these games end in just a shade over two hours sometimes. So if, if you like good, quick baseball, the KBO is really going to be attractive to people. So here's what's interesting. Every, everyone feels differently about their sport. So I think I can... I can find the apples to apples comparison. I'll watch any NFL game. You give me the Bengals and Browns on a Monday night and I'm going to watch it if it's the only thing to watch. But 
baseball, I don't feel that way, right? Baseball, I'm going to watch the Cubs. I'm going to watch sort of marquee matchups with high-profile players, but you're not going to get me to watch a random baseball game. You're not just watching a random baseball game. You're watching a random baseball game with nobody we've ever heard of. So is this because you love baseball so much? Like, are you getting a kick out of this? Are you getting a kick out of the betting? What's driving you to want to watch the KBO? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly guys in the KBOs. The KBO is a pretty strong league. There's definitely guys who are major league caliber. There's certainly players you've heard of here from American baseball who are now applying their trade over there, trying to improve themselves or, you know, just just finding themselves having success at a lower level where they can make a million dollars to play baseball that they would have otherwise been, been playing minor league ball here and getting paid 25K for the year. So these guys are getting paid for the first time in their lives, some of them, uh, and making good money to do what they like to do. But at the same time, there's guys like Hassan Kim, who's the shortstop for the Kuwum Heroes, who is 100% going to be posted to the major leagues next year. And if you he's, he's 24 years old. If you take his projections and kind of convert them over to major league projections, he's a guy who could conceivably be a 2020 guy at the major league level, league average defender, and, and above league average hitter at shortstop. So certainly a guy who's worth watching for MLB fans. If, if your team is a needed shortstop, he could be a guy that ends up on your major league roster next year. There's other young outfielders around the league. You know, a guy won rookie of the year two years ago, who set the rookie home run record, who's certainly going to be on the radar of major league teams in a few years. So there's high-end talent who belongs in the major leagues. They just might not necessarily fit uh, the modern major league environment. You know, a catcher like Wee Ji Yang for the Dinos, who's in his 30s now, could absolutely be a major league catcher but as a catcher in his 30s he's not really going to attract a ton of interest for major league evaluators for his talent even though he is good just because the age and contract situation doesn't really match up uh John yang who's the pitcher for the kia tigers he's the best starter in the league you know Hun- we've seen hunjin ru come over and have a lot of success here for the blue jays now he's uh got a big contract and excited to see what he can do in the american league instead of the nl but easily could have had success in the big leagues he just spent his entire year in korea but probably still could have success if he wanted to come over so there's there's really good talent in this league there's guys who are interesting to watch there's guys that you know from playing a little bit over here there's korean stars who came over who didn't really have much success like Jungho park and hyunsu kim who maybe didn't get a fully fair crack at a major league job but these guys are still absolute stars in Korea and, and completely beloved. And you can see how good they are relative to their their peers. So there's a lot of things that are interesting. It's not just be, being baseball. It's not just being baseball to bet on. Uh, I think there's there's talent to evaluate. And there's guys who it's interesting to see maybe why it didn't work out at the MLB level for them and, and why it work, might work out at a lower level. I see you mentioned early on, let's go back to the beginning. Now we got a little background that um, lines are moving like crazy. Totals are moving like crazy. How like how good are the lines? How do you think bookmakers are doing with this? And who do you think is betting on this? I'm asking you three questions in one. So I think the lines are pretty good. The opening lines, they're definitely responding to pretty aggressive money, though, because I've seen the lines moving fast. I have seen a total two days ago. You know, I wanted to bet it at over eight and a half. And by the time I checked it again, it was eight and a half minus 120. I checked it again. It was nine minus 110. Checked it again. It was nine minus 120. So every, every time I looked back, it was up 10 cents. And that was all within the span of 20 minutes, basically. So there's there's big action coming in this league in terms of, you know, relative to everything that's going on right now. But I think the books are pulling a pretty good handle. I don't know how they're making their lines necessarily, how good their projections are, if they're sort of adjusting them every day based off of expected lineups, or if they're just sort of pulling in starting pitchers and putting in a new one, 
you know, maybe pulling out relievers based on who pitched the prior day. But like any other sport, people are new to it and they're looking to bet favorites and the favorites by and large seem to be getting steamed up. So if you're looking to bet underdogs, I, I don't think you need to pounce on the line right away like you would for a major league baseball game. MLB games, I'm usually sitting ready to go when when the lines come out and firing on the dogs that I want because the generally, unless you're betting on the Orioles, the Royals, who nobody wants to bet on, those lines tend to go down, the underdog lines, if it's the right side where the KBO lines, it seems like pretty much every underdog ends up getting more value later in the day. So stick around. Uh, don't don't rush into the dogs if you want to bet them. But beyond that, you know, it's it's still sort of something that I'm feeling out. You know, the the Samsung Lions home stadium, I'm finding really interesting with those totals because the run environment there is about 11% above league average. If you go by park factors, they're the one that really stands out in terms of boosting a, a run environment. They, they took a bunch of over money the first two days, neither total hit. They took a bunch of under money yesterday and it, the game went over. You know, I was on the over all three days. So we'll see how that continues to evolve if I just sort of have that total projected higher. If uh, that that park environment is real and it plays out over the course of the season, I'm really interested to see how the ball continues to fly in this league. You know, we we said that the ball was dejuiced, but I've definitely noticed a bunch of home runs over the first few days of this league. So maybe they introduced a more normalized ball now, something in between the two over the past two years. So there's a lot to watch and evaluate in this league, and I wouldn't just be fully ready to dump all my money on a on a max bet yet because I think I have an edge on something. I'm playing everything small for now and and letting it play out. Reminder. Demerville is coming up after Zerillo to talk about the two minutes that made one man $72 million. Before we do that, I do want to do a few minutes on UFC 249. Tony Ferguson, minus 185 versus Justin Gaethje. I think he's plus 150. Zerillo, you're also our UFC genius. Give me your take on this fight. Yeah, so Tony's an absolute animal. His thing is stamina and just being able to outwork people for five rounds. He hasn't lost since May 5th, 2012. So it's it's been quite the run for him. He's won 12 fights in a row. I mean, Tony's, Tony's a unique guy. He's tough to beat. He certainly gets his stoppages. But Gage, you could say in the same respect, is just an absolute monster in terms of his ability to finish fights. So I think that's what makes this stylistically interesting is, is you have two guys who seem to almost have a bottomless tank in terms of their ability to keep finding the ability to come at you after multiple rounds of what would seemingly exhaust any other fighter. Gaethje maybe is the most dangerous guy that Tony's ever fought in his ability to knock somebody out. So I do think that this is a live underdog here. Gaethje originally took this fight, short rest, and now he's getting you know, more extended period to train leading up to it. Who really knows what these guys have in terms of their availability to train at specific facilities? I'm sure as they're, you know, more higher end fighters, they they have access to stuff that guys on the undercard might not. So this is a unique card in terms of people being able to train leading up to it, being able to eat right leading up to it, uh, seeing their coaches, you know, working out with the right partners. It's a unique card to handicap, unlike any other, really. But uh, I think Gaethje, like I said, is is very much a live dog just because he's he's got such a high probability of finishing any fight that he's in. I think he's he's won 18 of 21 fights by finish. So very scary, very, very, very scary contender there. And I think Tony Ferguson is in for the fight of his life, certainly. So that's interesting because normally the MO is no matter what, you bet the favorite in the UFC fights because so often the favorite wins. 
even if he's a minus 250 favorite, the value is almost always there because bookmakers will actually depress that number a little bit because they would like to get some money on the underdogs um, just because the, historically there's such mismatches. So now all of a sudden you're talking about Gaethje as like a potential live dog, which means at 150, you might be getting some value on that. No question. And like I was saying, in terms of training, I'm pretty sure Ferguson lives in California. Gaethje, I know is from Arizona. I'm not sure where he trains, but I mean, thinking about Tony being in California, how much has he really been able to get out and train with all the, all the lockdown orders that they have there? It's pretty restrictive. So I know he likes to go up into Big Bear, go up into the mountains, get that extra stamina base underneath him uh, at higher altitude. And I, I'm not necessarily sure what he's been able to do leading up to this. So his, his normal stamina advantage that he might have over a guy is going to be dissipated probably, especially getting up there in age as well. Now he's 36. You know, it's at some point that's going to run out. But he's uh, potentially an all-timer, especially if he wins this fight. I just – I think this is a live dog, like I said. Sean Zarillo covering the UFC, covering the Korea baseball organization, covering horse racing. It's like there's nothing else going on except the sports that you cover. Thank you for coming on the podcast, buddy. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Next up, as promised, on the favorites, Darren Ravel, who has had just an unbelievable stretch of big stories for the Action Network, breaking news. And yesterday, he did another one, a great feature. The 20-year anniversary of the most expensive, the most valuable two minutes in sports history. Two minutes for $72 million, including an unbelievable scene with envelopes being slipped under hotel room doors. Darren, what in heaven's name am I talking about? Well, Chad, uh, 2000, in 2000, um, there was a horse named Fusaichi Pegasus that won the Kentucky Derby. Didn't really know much about the story other than there was the Japanese owner. Um, and I remember sold for $72 million, uh, which was the highest at the time. And I, in the past, as American Pharaoh and Justify, as their breeding rights came through, every time I would say, well, it still hasn't beaten out Fusaichi Pegasus. You mentioned Fusaichi Pegasus won the Kentucky Derby, and he had a very interesting lineage and a very interesting ownership lineage. Explain some of the people involved. You know, maybe 10 years ago, I started to really understand the business side of horse racing, really the breeding side, which is amazing. So it's very important to start, you know, to, to be worth something as a stallion that your lineage is great. You can't just be like a great racehorse. You're likely to be a better racehorse if you have great lineage. So this horse, Fusaichi Pegasus, his father was Mr. Prospector, who in 2019, every single horse in the Kentucky Derby was connected to Mr. Prospector. Every single Horse. So this was Mr. Prospector's like second or third to last class. Um, he died, I think, in 1999. And Bob McNair and another another guy who was his partner had bought uh, a mare for a lot of money. Uh, also had great connections to a horse named Danzig, which is very, very popular to breed with. So they got together and they made this horse and the horse sold for $4 million as a yearling to Fusao Tekaguchi, a huge record. And so it had started the hype machine even before the 
before started running. All right. So explain how the bidding goes. Okay. So what happens is the horse loses its first race by a neck. And so people kind of forget about it. But then the horse wins and wins and wins. It, it gets a very late start. So it's only it, it had only run five races by the time the Kentucky Derby came along, only winning one uh, grade one stakes. But it is the Wood Memorial, which is a, a, a very big race. Uh, after the Kentucky Derby, where the horse won pretty convincingly, uh, having not led down the final stretch, they got in a Louisville hotel. All the breeders are in Louisville or Lexington. They decided that the first round would be a slip under the hotel door bidding process. And they got three bids, 30, 40, and $50 million. And this was just the opening salvo. It's so interesting to me. What is the expected ROI on something like that? Put in 30, 40, $50 million. What are you expecting to... That's a great question. So the way this works is they back end into it. A uh, average stud does about 200 of these things a year, impregnates 200 mares. And what you want to do if you're paying 72 million, which was the ultimate split between Coolmore, uh, Ashford Stud is their um, American operation, and uh, Shaddai Farm, which is a Japanese operation. So it's for $72 million. Ultimately, you want to make back 80% of that money in year one. That meant that they had figured out that they were probably going to stand him at stud for $225,000 per live full. So 225 times 200 equals 45 million. So they thought they could do about 45 million in the first year. Now, what happened was the horse then lost the Preakness, did not win the Breeders' Cup, and there was a little bit less buzz. And so they opened him up at 150000 per live full. So already they were kind of behind the eight ball because they weren't making up the standard mathematical formula that they felt they needed to make based on paying $72 million. Can you imagine what the bidding process, you're in a hotel room in Louisville, <laughs> you're the owner, you've got these envelopes coming in and explain a little bit like, it's not like the owner... The owner was flush with cash, but at times he was broke. He shouldn't have been allowed to buy the horse. That was something that I had not known that was in like one or two articles, like completely buried. That was my favorite part of the story. In, so he, he got the horse, the Fusayichi Pegasus horse at the 1998 Keeneland sale. In 1996, he had bought seven horses for $5.75 million at the Keeneland sale. Turned out, he didn't have the money and had to return all the horses. That seems like that does not pass the normal checks. Like the guy had to return all the horses and now he's won the bid for the horse that, that someone paid the most for in like 15 years. Like you think he's good for that? And he got fired from his job directly related to being extravagant. Now, then he started his own company a couple of years later. And that's at that point, that's when he bought Fusayichi Pegasus. Yeah, the $72 million, the only thing I can relate it to is LeBron James in an Akron hotel, the Nike Reebok back and forth. And then the story takes another turn, which is basically the guy completely disappears from horse racing. doesn't work that way. You get the bug and you try to do it again. That does not happen. 
where people he 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 had one more horse that he paid eight million dollars for in 2004 that horse didn't work out had to retire early never see the guy again in fact i couldn't find a single article on this guy despite the fact that wikipedia says he's still alive and is 84 i could not find a single article on this guy past 2010 i like that about him it's counter to what his narrative had been which was hustle mask get in front of the get in front of what feels like you being broke and then trying to fool people into letting you back into the game he got to where he needed to be he made 70 million dollars and he got out he's like i won i gamed the system yeah, it's unpredictable. It makes it a good it makes it it makes it a good story. You know, these guys have to believe that lineage matters, but it's it's just not one to one and it's and nothing's guaranteed. So the last part of the story is Coolmore, which again, Ashford Stud, which is in Versailles, Kentucky, now stands 14 studs, including American Pharaoh, which they paid they constructed the deal before he won the triple crown. So it's like 30 million justify, which they paid 75 million for with a, with a bonus. That number for Fusaichi Pegasus is actually 104 million. And if you inflation adjusted to today and Fusaichi Pegasus is the last guy in the barn. There's 14 of them. Fusaichi Pegasus is the cheapest horse at 7,500 per live full. He's been the same price for seven years. His horses have not done anything, and only five breeders bred him last year. So even at the bargain basement price of $7,500, only five people were interested in trying to see if it would work out. Do you know how much in the 20 years, how much it's made? I tried to do the math. The problem is that the horse was being shuttled from from here to Japan and breeding in both places. So it's possible that in the beginning, he was doing more than 200. The count in America is a little bit better. I would say they probably made 30 million back against what is now 104 million. They probably lost 72 million. (laughs) Oh my God. That is a crazy speculative market volatility environment. I mean, horse breeding is is just, you know, an unreal thing that happens. And they've tried to make the greatest combinations. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And what was amazing about Fusaichi Pegasus is that when you look at this horse, you just say, wow. Confirmation is the number one thing that I think throws, having been to a couple of these sales, confirmation is the one thing that throws people off, which is referring to the body and bone structure. And there are guys that just look so great that you just have to throw money at them. Well, look, it's no different than drafting any player in the NBA, major leagues, NFL, of course, off of how they look versus what their underlying stats are. The other thing I will say, breeding is a miracle and a mystery, no matter what industry you're in, human, yep. horse, or otherwise. <laughs> I would say people have said to me, what's the most dangerous job in horse racing? And people automatically go to, oh, it's those guys who get loaded in the gates before the race starts. Nope. It's the guys in the breeding shed. Very, very dangerous job. 
Well, Darren, that could be your next uh, Fade Ravel bet right there. <laughs> Darren Ravel, great story on Fusiichi Pegasus and its stud fees and $72 million out of two minutes of brilliance. If only I could get $72 million out of two minutes of brilliance. No, I wouldn't want you to because then I wouldn't have you. You'd, go, you'd go away. You'd Dude, I'd be, oh my God, I'd be you'd the be. Japanese owner of this horse and you'd never hear from me again. <laughs> All right, Darren, uh, I'm going to talk to you again in three minutes for our call about uh, the next thing we're talking about. <laughs> right. That won't be broadcast. All right, Darren Rivera. Right, thank you, sir. This has been The Favorites from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Subscribe, resubscribe, rate, comment, review, listen at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, at Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Love you.